Okay, we are going to be in John chapter 3, verse 16. You probably are familiar with John 3.16. Anyone in here familiar with John 3.16, even just a smidge? Uh, I get some no's in the back. I remember the first time I ever went to church, and they asked me what my favorite verse is. I didn't know a single one. And the guy next to me is like, John 3.16? I was like, nope, don't know it. And, uh, and I should have, because you'll see John 3.16 all over the place, right? It, 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 there's maybe a memory in your head of the first time you read it, or, or some lasting memory. For me now, I think of, if you're a college football fan, I think of Tim Tebow, uh, maybe the national championship game, I Black, John 3.16, a pretty iconic moment. Uh, I, I think of that one, but I also think of weddings. And now I've gotten to officiate a few, and, and I think John 3.16 just encapsulate the, encapsulates the idea of unconditional love. The unconditional love of God in this, this marriage coming together is this, this display of God's love from him to mankind and the marriage covenant, weddings, this is an opportunity for us to display to reflect that kind of a love. And it is a massive, massive uh, opportunity and commitment that we're stepping into and everybody else rallies around as a witness to the covenant that the two people are coming into together. Two becoming one. And so I always think of weddings, and uh, one in particular stands out to me. It was when I was in college, and it was the, the groomsmen, the officiant, they were all up there, and uh, the song was actually starting to build, and then all of a sudden, I don't know if this was planned. If it was planned, it was a weird way to plan it, but I think it was just kind of spur of the moment. The groomsmen, or, or the bridegroom, or whatever, the guy that's about to get married, okay? I don't know exactly what he's called, but he... He stops everything, and he walks out to the front, and he takes the mic from the officiant, and he says, before my bride comes down the aisle, I just want you to know that this thing isn't really about us. It's about God, and everything that you're going to see here is a picture of God's love for us. He says, and even in our marriage season, we're not always going to deserve the love that we extend to one another, but we're going to extend it unconditionally. And he says, as much as you get a picture of how much we love each other, I hope you see more how much God loves you. And he said, thanks for being here. I'm about to get married. And then he gave the mic back. And it was this incredible moment because the guy that's just kind of playing in the story, right? He's just a main character. All of, the, all of a sudden, he stops and he faces the crowd. It's like he breaks the fourth wall, the fourth barrier. And he says, hey, I just want you to know something that's really, really, really important. And I bring that up because in John chapter 3, we've been having this conversation, uh, Jesus, between Nicodemus, that John, the, the disciple, he is covering this. He's recording the things that are happening in his account, in his gospel. And he's going 1 through 15, this confrontation with Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee that thought he could earn his righteousness before God through works, through law-keeping. And Jesus is talking to him about who can actually enter into the kingdom but somebody that's born again. And all he's talking about is salvation through grace, and it's something that Nicodemus can't comprehend, the teacher of the law, the teacher of Israel. And Jesus is saying, shouldn't this be something you know? He says, all I've talked about is things in the Old Testament. It's just coming into full picture now that I, the Messiah, am here. And so Nicodemus isn't putting it together, and it's likely the people that would read this as John is going aren't also putting together this whole salvation by grace through faith. And so what John does as he is narrating what is happening, the narrator stops and he says, I'm actually going to speak here. 
And so maybe in your Bible, if you have a red letter Bible, uh, 16 through 21 is still in red letters as though Jesus speaks. But uh, I would say many commentators, uh, theologians would say that this is actually a synopsis of John, not the words of Jesus. Because they move into a third person conversation about Jesus, the Son of God. And so this is likely John's synopsis, his takeaways of the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus. And he says, I want to take advantage and I want to capitalize on this incredible conversation. So the narrator stops and he begins to speak directly to his audience. So it's important for us to see exactly what John has to say. And we have one of the most famous verses, most well-known, John 3, 16, in this little synopsis that John gives us. Now, reminder of what we're talking about. Nicodemus is confused. Uh, he, he says, how can these things be? What is this idea of being born again? And, and remember, I, I went in great detail about Asher's birth, and some of you were afraid I was going to get even more detailed, and I stopped. I wasn't that graphic. But Asher had no contribution to his physical birth, and in the same way, we have no contribution to our spiritual birth, that it is the sovereign will and work of God to bring new life to believers on earth. It is the work of God, which is really hard for somebody like Nicodemus, who has kept the law and then the traditions of the elders of his people uh, to the fullest degree for then Jesus to say, yeah, you're not even going to see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again, which is something you can't contribute to. So this is really difficult for Nicodemus to wrap his brain around, and these people are still trying to figure out who Jesus is because he might be this Messiah, might be this promised king. He might just be a prophet or a miracle worker or a really good teacher. And they're trying to figure it out because Jesus doesn't come as they anticipated. They thought he would be the king of Israel, king of the world, and he would just come and clean house, wiping out all the bad guys, all the oppressive governments like Rome, and leading Israel into a place of prominence. He said, this is going to be our political and military leader, our king. And Jesus just comes in this humility and is teaching the people and healing others and is not combatant at all to any of the powers of that day. And so they're confused and they're like, if this is the Messiah, why isn't he doing Messiah-like things? Why isn't he being this king in power? Where is his Sword, And so they're trying to break through, and John is actually trying to break through this common conception of Israel that the Messiah would come to lay down the law, would come and clean house. But what we know, secondhand, in retrospect, is that Jesus didn't just come to clean house and judge, condemn the whole world. He came to save it at least in his first coming. His second coming will look much different, but in his first coming, he comes to offer salvation. And John is going to tell us why. So picking up in verse 16, why does the Messiah not come and clean house and judge everybody? Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into, in the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God gives his son because he loves the world. This is not the expectation of the Israelites of the Jews in their expectation was God's justice and wrath on display. 
but what they got was God's love, grace, and mercy. So he gives a gift to the people of Israel because of his love. I talked about uh, unconditional love. This word is agape. Agape. And, and it is almost exclusively used of God's love towards his people. It is an unconditional love, a love that is not based on any conditions, i.e., if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. I will love you. I'll do these things. I'll keep up my end of the bargain as long as you keep up your end of the bargain. That's not the love of God. If that was the love of God, we would be gone because we have failed on our part of the covenant, on our part of the conditions over and over and over and over. We're people that are constantly rejecting, rebelling against God, and yet he continually extends grace. The greatest picture of that is God sending his only begotten son into the world, not to condemn it, not to clean house, but to save it. Now, what does it mean when he says begotten son of God? Begotten means Jesus is of the same substance of God the Father. The word is homoousios, same substance. It means all the attributes that we see in God the Father, his eternality, his self-existence, his, his grace, his mercy, his omniscience, his all-powerful, uh, his ability to give, to create, we see in the person of Jesus, that Jesus is of the same substance. He is the only begotten son of God. Now, we sing songs and we talk about being sons and daughters of God, and that is true, but we're adopted sons. We have been created, then we rebel, we reject, we sin against God, but with new life, we can be adopted into the family. So we're not of the same substance of God, and yet, because of God's love, he can adopt us in. This is Galatians 4, if you want to read that later for homework where we receive the same privileges and blessings as though we are sons and daughters because we're adopted into the family. But Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the only begotten Son of God who is of the same substance of the Father. Now, God sends his Son as a gift to us. Why? Because we need his son. We are in need of his grace, and, and Jesus is going to offer us something. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The offer of Jesus is eternal life with God. The way to accept that offer is belief in him. Whoever believes, not just the Jews, not just uh, the religious elite, not just the wealthy, not just the people that kind of fit in really well, whoever shall believe in him shall have eternal life. Now, what do we mean when we say believe? First, John never uses the word believe as a noun. It is always a verb. That belief is in action. Faith works. It moves. It it continues in on something. It's not just something that kind of stands alone. And we can actually break down belief into three aspects. Knowledge, assent, commitment. Knowledge, assent, commitment. Let me just explain those. Uh, the first one, knowledge, you must know what it is you are being asked to believe in. Right? It starts with knowledge. Somebody has to tell you what exactly you're being asked to believe in. Say, hey, would you believe that one plus one is two? Say, well, maybe, <laughs> you know, that may be where the knowledge begins, that you have to have an understanding. 
of this whole idea, of this whole concept of what we call the gospel, this good news. It starts with knowledge of what we are being asked to believe in. And then the second one is assent, or maybe an easier word is agree. You have to agree with that knowledge. You say, yeah, I agree that one plus one is two. You might have the knowledge that some people in the world say one plus one is two, or maybe the earth is flat, but you say, yeah, I don't actually agree with that. So it's not anything just to say, yeah, I know, I get the idea that Jesus came down and he was the son of God, and then he died on the cross three days later and rose again. You can know that, but you're not necessarily agreeing with it. Right, so there's knowledge, there is agreement that you agree that Jesus is who he claims to be. And you agree that his death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God for you. You have knowledge of that. You have an agreement of that. And then finally, is there, there is a commitment, a genuine uh, belief and faith. It leads to action, what we most call trust. That you would trust what Jesus has done for you is efficient for your life. That when God looks upon you, he doesn't see you as still guilty and under your sin and under the wrath of God. He sees you what? Through what Jesus has done for you. He sees you as covered, as saved, as innocent, because of what Jesus has done. There's a knowledge, there is agreement, and there is commitment that you place your faith, your trust in the person and the work of Jesus. It's a very silly analogy, but I do think a trust fall to some degree makes sense here when we're talking about commitment and trust. Uh, initially, when, you, when you're talking about knowledge, you have the knowledge that someone is offering to catch you if you fall. Say, okay, I understand that if I fall backwards, you're offering to catch me. The second part, you would be agreeing that this person is actually trying to catch you, okay? That there is a willingness there to catch you uh, because there's a lot of times where somebody says, hey, trust fall, do a trust fall. And you're like, I know what you're offering, but I'm not agreeing that you're going to say, you know, like, I don't think this is, you're going you're gonna to punk me right here. And then finally, the commitment is when you actually commit to going back. Uh, I, I spent three summers out at Sky Ranch. I was thinking of this because they're here hanging out with us more on that later. Uh, and, and we always used to do these, like, ropes courses and zip lines and all these things. And for the most part, like, the kids were, were fearless. And they would always go down this stuff, and, and you really didn't have a problem. But every once in a while, you would have a kid that would sit up there for like an hour and a half. And they would just kind of sit there and not go down. And if the A-team athletic or activities team couldn't get them down, then they would like send up their trusted, loving counselor and be like, all right, tell them to jump. <laughs> and you're like, all right, I'll try. And I remember having a conversation with a guy. And as he is sitting there, we're watching like two or three other people just go by over and over and over again. And I say, you do understand that this thing isn't going to drop you, right? Like, you are seeing all these other people, and, like, that will go the same for you. Like, you can, you get that this is, is, is trustworthy. And, and he's like, yeah, I get, like, how it works. I know I'm not going to fall. Like, I agree. But he just wouldn't take that leap. He just wouldn't step off into it. That all of his, his uh, knowledge, it was just cognitive. He says, no, I know how it works. I understand all of it. I agree. But I don't think I can take that leap. And for, for belief 
to be genuine, for it to be real, there has to be a point where you put your weight into it. We talked last week as we closed, is saying, man, how do I know that I'm earning my salvation or if I am receiving what God has given? And the question we asked is, if you were to die today and God said, how should I let you into heaven, or why should I let you into heaven, what's your answer? And your answer to that question tells you what you're putting your trust in. Because if your answer is, well, I'm a pretty good guy, or I go to church, or I haven't really done anything that bad, or my parents, you know, this and that, like all those things, that's telling me you've put your trust in your own efforts. You're saying, man, I think I'm a person that is worthy of heaven. But if your answer is, I shouldn't be led into heaven, I'm a sinner, but Jesus has died for me, and I, have, I believe that what he did has made me clean, that he became sin so that I could be made the righteousness of God. That tells me you have put your trust in that, of the saving work of Jesus on the cross. So we have a knowledge, we have an agreement with that knowledge, and then we have a trust that moves us forward in life, that our faith works. Our trust will bring us to the point that we would fall. You say, I know or I understand you're offering to catch me. I agree that you can. And then finally, I trust that you will. My faith is in you. And so this is what, when we talk about belief, when, this, this, when we talk about faith, that is saving faith. That we understand our guiltiness before God. We understand our sin, that we are deserving of death, that we're, we deserve to be separated from God, that we're under wrath, that we would own up to our sin and understand that we lack righteousness. And that we need what Jesus has done for us. That we place all of our trust in Jesus. And we rest in what Christ has done. Because another dangerous thing that we will get into so often is that after salvation, after we have become a Christian, uh, when we sin, and yes, the answer is when, because all of us in this room, we probably sinned this day, there's a part in us to say, well, man, now I sinned, and so I don't know that God loves me anymore, so i got to really kind of uh, step up my game and reading and praying and doing all those things to kind of right the scales of God's love for me. And what started by grace through faith we try to keep up our end of the bargain as though there is one through really hard works. As though we can keep what was given to us as a gift, we think we can keep it through hard work. And the Christian faith isn't an offer of just passivity that we just rest and keep on sinning because, hey, grace abounds. We understand we have a new identity in Christ. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, and, and so we live this life for him, and yet at the same time, we have to be so weary and so careful that we don't move right back into law-keeping and grace-earning because we can't. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that for, what, for whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He doubles down, verse 17, For God, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. When John is talking about the world, both in verse 16 and 17, he is talking about mankind under the domain of darkness. Remember this darkness and light language that John has been using from John 1. The world is under darkness. It's under sin and death. And so the world that Jesus is stepping into is fallen human beings that are under curse, 
from Genesis 3 from the fall. They're under curse. They're under judgment. For the wages of sin is death. They're under curse. They're under judgment. And they are dead in their sin. That they don't have life with God. This is the world that Jesus is stepping into. And I think that's so important as we move through these uh, next verses because he is entering into a world that's doomed for destruction. If he does nothing, it is doomed for destruction. That is the way darkness leads us. And he offers life to people that are doomed for destruction. He says, I'm offering you life. I'm offering you salvation, that you would be rescued from the path you are headed. And what's so important to to this is, as Jesus enters into the scene, he is not coming into a world of neutral people. Like, this world is not neutral. It wasn't then, and it isn't now. And, and I think that is this false belief that we have sometimes that uh, when, when we talk about the gospel, it is people moving from neutrality to pro-Jesus or neutrality to anti-Jesus. Does that make sense? I know it's kind of a, a weird concept, but we say, man, everybody's kind of neutral. No one's really that bad. Uh, it's just a matter of if, they, if they're for Jesus or against him whenever he comes onto the scene. But the reality is nobody is neutral. Nobody was neutral and nobody is neutral. We have all sinned. We are all guilty. We are all deserving of wrath. We're all perishing. It's not neutral people. It's not good people, bad people. It's all broken people in need of grace. And this is what Jesus comes to do. To offer people that are under the wrath of God, who are already condemned, he comes to offer them life. Now, whether we stay that way depends on our response to Jesus. He came not to make neutral people into pro-Jesus people, but to make guilty people non-guilty. To make condemned people not condemned, and to make dead people eternally alive. We have John 5, 24. We'll come to this in a couple of weeks, but I think it's, it's perfect here. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. That we, in this world, we start at dead in our sin. Not neutral, but dead in our sin. And the offer of Jesus is to bring us out of darkness, out of death, and into life. This magnifies the unconditional love of God. Because when Jesus comes onto onto the scene, the vast majority of the world was not like, yes, the Messiah is here. This is awesome. We waited for this guy. Or maybe they thought they did, but when they saw who Jesus was and what, what Jesus was about and says, oh, you're not here to conquer Rome. You're not here to confront all the people that are oppressing us. You're here to confront me and my sin. They weren't clapping anymore. They weren't pro-Jesus people. They weren't pro-Messiah people. They just wanted to live for themselves, and they wanted greater comfort and greater pleasures than they had before when they realized the Messiah wasn't offering that. We all realize, oh, these aren't neutral people. These are people in the darkness, dead in their sin. But Jesus comes to offer us this life. Verse 18. 
He who believes in him is not judged. They pass out of death and into life. They do not come into judgment. But he who does not believe has been judged already because they've already been dead in their sin. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those who reject Jesus remain in darkness. They remain in darkness. They remain under judgment. John, he's also going to unpack the essence of belief for us. Sorry, the essence of unbelief. We saw the essence of belief is knowledge and assent and commitment. Here's how John sees the essence of unbelief in verse 19. This is the judgment, that the light, Jesus, has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. He says, you want to talk about unbelief? It is the love of darkness. It's the love of sin. It's the love of the lifestyle that you have had your entire life. So what John is telling us here is that people reject Jesus because they love sin and evil. A lot of times when we talk to atheists or agnostics or whatever it is today, their, their stumbling blocks or the obstacles that are in front of them, uh, we always hear of the rational problems and the inconsistencies or whatever they have uh, with, with the things of Christianity or the creation of the world or the Big Bang or, or evolution, whatever that may be, they're all rational reasons that, that people say, well, this is the thing that's keeping me from belief. But what John is telling us is that it is not a mind problem primarily, it is a heart problem. Now, the heart might lead to mind reasons that we might begin to find all the other reasons that we don't believe in God, but it starts in the heart. It is the love of evil. It is the love of sin. It is love of darkness. It's a heart problem. The ultimate reason that people do not become Christians is because they don't want to change the way that they live. They don't want to change the way that they live. They'll find a million other reasons uh, that you have to unpack and solve for them. Uh, but what I'll tell you, one of the things that I, I've done in the past, and, and I love this, because uh, I'll sit down with somebody at UNT, and I sat down with some, like, linguistics major, and he was talking about all of these things in the Bible, like I sat down with him in, in, within two minutes. He's like, so this verse and this verse and all of these things. And I said, hey, wait, 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 we can talk about this as long as you want. I said, but let me ask you this. If I answer every single one of your questions, and Jesus really is who he says he is, and God is real, and everything the Bible talks about is true, would you follow Jesus? And he says, no. <laughs> and I said, why? And he says, I don't, I, I, basically, in, in very kind, nice words, or very eloquent words, he liked to party. He liked sex. He liked alcohol. He liked weed. He, he didn't want to change his life. If all of those things were true, he says, man, if Jesus was who he says he is, if all the Bible inconsistencies go away, I said, would you follow him? Would you consider it? And he says, no, not really. He says, I think you would ruin my time in college. <laughs> and so John's right. It starts in the heart that we love the way that we live. Mankind in and of itself wants to live for themselves, for their pleasure, for their happiness, for their glory, for their fame. And when Jesus enters onto the scene, when he enters into the narrative of our lives, he offers us life with him. Jesus comes to offer life, but he also demands obedience to him. Jesus is often called Lord and Savior. And we love the Savior, 
but we're a little reluctant about him being Lord. But he comes to do both. And if he is going to save us from our sins, then we must understand, this is Galatians 2.20, that we have been crucified with Christ, therefore it's no longer us who lives, but it's him. And the life that we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. When Jesus enters into our lives that we have life with him, we are not our own anymore. We have been redeemed. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ. We can't just have Savior and put Jesus in our pocket and take him out in times of need. He comes to lead and direct our lives. He comes to take the wheel, see whatever that Carrie Underwood song is. He says, I'm going to lead your life. You're mine and I'm yours. This is the offer of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Why do people not want to come to light? Verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. By nature, the light exposes and confronts all people in the midst of their sinful lifestyles. This is like shining a flashlight into a dark corner. Everything is exposed. This is like the sixth grade party where everything is dark and there's just people in the corner and then you turn on the lights and then they run around like crazy rats. You're like, okay, something was going on there. But the light exposes those things. Anyone shout out middle school dances, uh, right? All of a sudden you turn the lights on, the teacher walks around with that flashlight and everyone runs away like they're afraid of the light because it exposes them. It confronts them in their sin and in their lifestyles. And people don't like that. We don't like that. We don't like to be exposed. That all the things that we do and the things that we live for and the motivations of our heart, we would see in light of the truth that we live for ourselves, that we're glory thieves when we, when we ought to live for God. So when Christ begins to shine on a person's life, it will either lead him to repentance and faith or drive him further into the darkness. That's what happens. And this is true pre-salvation, but this is also pretty true post-salvation. Uh, Proverbs 18.1 says, He who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He fights out against sound judgment. We all have people in our life that we'll kind of see for a while, and, they, and then all of a sudden they're like gone for five months, and, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, and they like come back in, and then you're like, hey, how's, what's going on? How's life? And, and they're just like, it's really bad. <laughs> it's not great. Like no one ever goes into isolation and into the darkness and then comes out and be like, I'm crushing it right now. Like that just doesn't happen because we isolate ourselves. We're in the darkness. We need to be in the light. We need to walk in honesty and transparency before one another. Because when the light shines, when we're exposed, we will either move towards God or move away from God and his people. And this is a daily thing. Even in the midst of our sin, even in the things that, as I mentioned that, the things that you do in privacy when no one is around, the things that are on your brain right now and just kind of give you an ugh in your heart, are you just hiding that deeper and deeper in the darkness? I said, man, no one can know that. I'm just going to stomach that. I'm just not going to tell anyone of those things. That is where the enemy seeks to keep you. That we can't, as crass as this statement is, we can't fight the devil in the dark. We need to be people of the light. And I promise you what you'll find is grace and forgiveness. Because that is the light of God. Verse 21. But he who practices the truth 
comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested, literally made visible as having been wrought or carried out, brought up in God. Those who come to the light, they let their light shine to the world. This is Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your God who is in heaven. That this is now the purpose of our life, that we don't just become these kind of cleaned up Christians that we can come out here and flex all of our good deeds. We're not trying to make a name for ourselves under the guise of God. That when people see the way that they live, hopefully they say, there is something about that person and we could say, yeah, it's God. It is the goodness of God. God has changed my life. That when people see us, we are lights in the darkness. There is no more shame for us. There is no more hiding for us. We don't have to present this really clean image to the world. We don't have to manage information to the people that we are around. Why? Because if we believe Christ has died for us, then there is no sin. There is no truth about us that cannot be covered. By the blood of Jesus. So if you go around life wearing a mask and just hiding all of these things or wearing a cape and saying, I'm Superman, I have all these things going together, you are hindering the power and the fullness of the gospel. But when we walk in the light and we we let Christ shine his light into every cavern of our life, past, present, We are letting the gospel do its work in us. And we are letting God's goodness shine through us. Not because we're a bunch of perfect people, but because we're broken people that have found a savior and his grace is sufficient for us. So we don't come here to magnify our sin and show it off. Man, it, it is shameful to me as I think about the things of my life in the past. But I know the goodness of God is is real and his grace is sufficient and his love is unconditional. And so I'm not afraid to walk in the light before people because it magnifies the goodness of God and his grace. That we would let our light shine before others because we are now God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So you're sitting there, how can I let my light shine? How can, I, how can I be that? What does that look like? Yeah, you can save cats from trees, and that's great if they're, they don't need help from trees most often, though. But can I just tell you from this passage, one of the best ways that we can do that is love. It's love for one another. It is love in this group of people. Jesus says it himself. He says, this is how people will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. I mean, how amazing would it be if you're going around coffee shops, like you're at West Oak, you're at Zara, you're at uh, Avoca, don't want to leave anybody out, who am I missing? Um, Sons Coffee, uh, yes, shout out Sons, uh, wherever, you're, you're, you're at campus, you're all over the place. How incredible would it be if without us even saying anything, people would say, I think they're Christians because of the way that we love one another, that people would come into this building and say, I don't really know their names, but I know they're people of God because of their love for one another. How amazing is that? That we can display the love of God. 
And one day, if the Lord wills, and you will, and you get married, and you ask me to be your officiant, I'll do it. I'll say yes right now, but ask me later. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that you have an opportunity before you to be a reflection of God's love for his church, for this world that's in darkness. And the way that you can display that is by loving your spouse, even when they don't deserve it. Because I can tell you from two plus years of marriage, and that's not even that far, but I can tell you, I have ammunition. There are times when I am not deserving of Amy's love. There are times when Amy's not that deserving of my love. And there's this buildup in all of these conditions, these justifications that we have where we just want to pour out our wrath on one another. You probably feel that with your roommates sometimes. Where you're like, I have a laundry list of reasons why I can just smack you and chew you out. And in those very moments, let me tell you, you have an opportunity not to choose wrath, but to choose love. To show grace. Not a grace that just winks at sin and opportunities for growth, because I think that's loving too to talk about that. But day after day, moment after moment, we can be a people of love. That isn't just conditional, but that shows up, that sticks it out, and constantly encourages us to a greater devotion to the Lord. I mean, that's what we can do here. That's what you can do in your life groups and wherever it is the Lord leads you the rest of your life, that your light, there is no better way than love. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. He gave of his only begotten son. Because God loves the world, we have a cross to which the God of the universe hangs upon for us. This is our example. This is our hope. This is our salvation. This is our creed. So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to sing, and we're just going to respond to the goodness of God and, and, and sing these truths over ourselves. And then as we move from this place, the hope is that we would just look and live differently. As people of love and kindness that only can come from God. So let me pray. Father, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for these friends that we have and just this opportunity we have every single Tuesday night to open your word and to be reminded, to be reminded that we can't earn your love, that we can't earn uh, our righteousness before you. We cannot meet the standards of the law because that's perfection and we have fallen well short even today. And yet we don't have to sit in here like a bunch of people terrified to sing out as though we're unworthy because you've made a way. You offer life to us. So God, I, I pray that you would help us model this love to one another. That anyone that steps in here would be amazed, would be in awe of the love that is on display. And it would just begin to move and work through this city. Wherever we go, we would be lights in the darkness. Whoever we're around, whatever our roommate situation is, whatever our family life is back home, we wouldn't hide the light. We wouldn't be ashamed of what you have done in us. 
We wouldn't be ashamed of our identity in you as sons and daughters of the king, but we would let our light shine. And when people see us and ask about it, we say, this is the work of God. God's changed me. God's made me new. I'm not who I once was. So, Father, I pray for opportunity after opportunity to come our way, that we would let our light shine, and we will be people that love, and we will be reminded of your goodness and the grace that you poured out on us when all we deserved was wrath. Father, we see these things now. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Sing the whole thing.